You are listening to an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's Word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org. Okay, we are looking at the responsibility of witnessing exemplified. In other words, how was it carried out by lifestyle? How was it carried out by uh, example? Uh, That's the other side of the coin of being a witness is being one who is living uh, according to the message of the gospel, which is a transformative message, transforming us from darkness to light, transforming us from being in bondage to a sin to being alive in Christ Jesus. Uh, There are other analogies that we could put in there that the scriptures give us, but the, the thrust is that the gospel is a transformative message, uh, and that message continues to do that work of transformation in us, and the apostles taught the early church, the apostolic church, and through the scriptures teach us that an important component to our witness is embracing and living according to the biblical lifestyle <clears throat> revealed in scripture. We see in the apostolic church that they had to adjust to this message. There had to be course corrections uh, that the apostles brought to the attention of the uh, believers in the apostolic church. Apostolic simply meaning that era of time in which the apostles lived and ministered in the church. That's why we refer to it as the apostolic church. Um, and, And so they were teaching and equipping and directing the believers in the apostolic church, the first century church, to live lives that would be consistent with the gospel. That if they lived a life inconsistent with the gospel, it would undermine the message of the gospel. So that teaches us that as we think about witnessing and seek to grow as witnesses for Jesus Christ, that we must realize that an equal part of that um, responsibility is to be living according to the gospel. So now we come back to the book of Galatians, where uh, earlier in the book uh, we've already witnessed how Paul confronted Peter about his hypocrisy um, and, and the impact that that had on Jewish believers in the churches of Galatia or I should say in Antioch. Um, And he confronted that because it was detrimental to the message of the gospel, which teaches us that lifestyle impacts our witness and that the expectation from our Lord is that our lifestyle um, match the message of the gospel. And that lifestyle is not for us to determine on our own, to customize. It is revealed to us in the scriptures. So we go to the scriptures to understand how God wants us to live as followers of Christ. Now we come to chapter 4 and we read this, but then indeed when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. So he said that that was your life. That's what you knew. That was your understanding. You served by nature those deities that are not gods because to be a god you have to exist. And that was one basic qualification that those false deities and all deities, false deities, don't have. They don't exist. 
Uh, but now after you have known God, or rather by, known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So he said, why are you going back to some of those elements of the lifestyle that you once knew? Whether it is Judaism, legalistic Judaism, uh, as Paul confronted uh, Peter, as he mentioned earlier in the book, or whether it is going back and um, embracing some of the elements of the previous lifestyle. He, and he gives some specifics here, which I find interesting myself. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years with religious significance, obviously. And so important, not only in the um, Jewish calendar, because it flowed from the Old Testament, but also in the pagan calendar, they had days that they you know, re uh, considered special religious days. They had months that were significant uh, religious observations and seasons of the year and special years. He says, why are you going back to that? That impacts lifestyle. That impacts what you do. In, in the Jewish calendar, they have the various feasts, and they conduct themselves in particular ways during those feasts. Um, I, I can give you an example. I picked up a, a Jewish um, uh, client one day, and I related this story before, and picked him up uh, down at the mega caverns, he and his wife and uh, child, and they were from Israel. And they were here visiting some friends. So I took them to the place where their friend lived near uh, Bowman Field. Dropped them off, and uh, this was a Friday. So it was late Friday afternoon, which means that Sabbath was going to be kicking in along about 6. So I get home. And getting stuff out of the car, and I noticed that they had left a jacket, the jacket for their little son. And so uh, I told Susan, well, after supper, I'll go back in and, and give it back. I said, you want to come along and crash the Jewish Sabbath? <laughs> so she did. So we went back in there and stopped, and there were some kids outside. And uh, about as soon as we opened the door, boom, you know, the, the man that... Um, I needed the jacket, and his friend came out. And, uh, and the guy, his friend, was dressed in the long black, you know, clothing. I don't know if you just call it an outer coat or a robe or what. And he had on his hat, and he had this big black beard. I mean, he just looked the part because he was the part. And they were very appreciative. Um, and he said... I would give you a tip, but we can't do that on the Sabbath. <laughs> well, I didn't care, but what? Yeah, it's, it's a small thing. But there were rules and regulations that governed how, what they did, when they did, when they did it, what they could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath. We don't have that, and. That's just an illustration. Now, the same is true in paganism. In non-Jewish religion, certainly it's not there in Christianity. It's not there in the New Covenant. But it is there, for instance, in Islam. 
I forget what month is the month of Ramadan. It's, it was recent, but uh, I don't track it that closely. I just know that they have a whole month in which they fast, and that governs their lives. It impacts their lifestyle. It governs what they eat. It governs when they eat. It governs a period of time and what they do during that period of time. It affects their lifestyle, and they give it religious significance. And in Christ, none of that matters, whether it's from Judaism, Islam, or any other ism. It's not there. But incessantly, there are those in the apostolic church who sought to bring back into the lifestyle of the church on some level, to some degree, some of these, as Paul referred to them, beggarly elements of the world, of what you once knew. He says, don't do that, because it's inconsistent with the message of the gospel. And I, 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 one reason I find this informative, because here we are in the 21st century, and here's one of my little bugaboos, okay? You've heard it before if you've been here, and if you haven't, you're going to hear it perhaps for the first time. We have developed in the Christian church are special days and months and seasons. I don't know about years, but we have developed in the, in, in the church Lent and a lot of various expressions of Christianity observe Lent or one form or another. Why? Well, if you choose to do it, fine, but if the expectation is that you do it because God expects you to do it, then that's incorrect. Because in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, there are no special days other than Sunday, the first day of the week, which marks the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is significant because that in the apostolic church is when believers gather to worship the Lord. And so believers are to not forsake the assembling of themselves together, come together for worship. But other than coming together on Sunday, the first day of the week, for worship, for edification, we, we have nothing in the New Testament that says, you shall celebrate Christmas. You shall celebrate Easter. You shall observe Lent. You shall observe whatever other designations are in there. God doesn't expect that. Those are expectations that Christians through the centuries have placed upon themselves and have placed upon the church. But God didn't put those there. So if we didn't celebrate Easter, would, that, would God say, you know, I'm really ticked off at you. You didn't celebrate Easter. And you might be saying, now, Pastor, that's about the resurrection. Well, that's right. That's what it holds up and signifies. And that's central, foundational to the faith. But the reality is, every Sunday we come together as a celebration of the resurrection, not just one Sunday a year. That's why I got a, uh, a little bit of a personal uh, laugh when I saw a fellow pastor post on Facebook. He says, if you happen to miss Easter Sunday, don't worry. Our church celebrates it the other 51 weeks of the year. 
But you see how easy it is to drift into this type of thing, and then it impacts lifestyle, it impacts expectations. And Paul, to the churches of Galatia, says, listen, you guys are drifting back into this stuff, and it's impacting the way you understand God, the way you understand your relationship to God. It's, under, <clears throat> it's impacting the way that you uh, live your lifestyle. And he says, don't do that. He says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So obviously, Paul had taught them that you need to move away from those observations. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. So he's saying you have drifted back into those. Don't do that. So it's just there to cause us to think, okay? I'm not saying go out and start trashing all of the days that the church in its various expressions observes. Don't go out and do that, okay? But I am saying understand that it is not God's expectation that we do that. Verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was a blessing what, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? What was this blessing that you enjoyed? Was it the special days, etc.? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Part of the truth he told them was, that's not part of following Christ. The special feasts and the special days and designated sacred days, that's not who we are. Okay. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well, when you look at what Paul has talked about in the book of Galatians to the churches of Galatia, you see what he means by a yoke of bondage, going back into those lifestyles or trying to bring elements of those previous lifestyles into the lifestyle following Christ. He says you've been set free from that. In Christ we have liberty. We have liberty from sin. That's why we spent time looking at what Christian liberty is or liberty in Christ is. It's freedom from sin, most fundamentally. And we are no longer uh, bound to the law. That was especially true for Jewish converts. And so we don't try to take elements of the Old Covenant and, and, and try to bring that into the New Covenant. That's why we stress that anything from the Old Covenant, meaning the Old Testament, that God wanted to continue in the life of the church, in the life of the believer, has been restated in the New Covenant slash the New Testament. So it's not a matter of diminishing the value or the importance of the Old Testament, not at all. We value it as the Word of God. But as to the lifestyle that we're called to and how we are to live, that is revealed to us and unfolded in the New Testament. And the New Testament has everything that we need to know about how it is we follow Christ and how it is we live for Christ our challenge is to practice what we do know. 
And so anything from the lifestyle of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that is necessary for us in following Christ has been restated in the New. So we don't take the lifestyle of the Old Covenant and try to impress it upon the church. And that's been a problem in the church from its inception. And it's still a problem today to certain degrees in certain uh, areas in certain aspects. Our liberty is from the Old Covenant. Now we are in the New Covenant. It's no mystery what the New Covenant is. It is the New Testament. That's it. <laughs> and that was sealed for us in Christ and by Christ. Just as the Old Covenant was given through Moses, this is what Hebrews is about, and it had its purpose, and God used it, and it was good because it was from God. It was perfect because it was from God, but it had a shelf life. God built the Old Covenant with a shelf life. And that shelf life expired when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, became man and accomplished the work of the Father, the will of the Father, and his death, burial, and resurrection. And with that, then, is the institution of the New Covenant, the New Testament. And that is permanent. That is forever. And so we need to realize that our liberty is from the old covenant. It's from liberty from sin, the bondage of sin, and liberty from the old covenant, the Old Testament. And when we say liberty from, again, I just want to keep stressing, we do not take any kind of a negative attitude toward the Old Testament at all. Not at all. But we do honor what our Lord and what the apostles have revealed and taught, that we need to move on. See, that was the struggle of Hebrews, the people that were being addressed in the book of Hebrews. You have those who are not willing to let off the Old Covenant and move on. And Hebrews is about moving on. Moving on. Don't try to mix the two. Understand there's a distinction move on and live according to the call and the requirements of the new, custom, uh, new covenant. So when Paul talks about liberty, that's what he's talking about. He says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you had become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you believe that circumcision grants to you and provides to you additional grace... You misunderstand the message of grace. Grace comes through Jesus Christ. Grace does not come through Christ plus the practice of any other biblical, biblically stated uh, responsibility. And that was what was being taught, among other things, in the churches of Galatia. Again, understand the message that they were hearing from the uh, false teachers was this. Yes, have faith in Christ. They, they didn't attack the message of faith in Christ. They didn't do that. In fact, they embraced it, but they said, with that then, you need to have additional grace, and you need to do your part in securing the grace of God and Right here in the Old Testament, it talks about circumcision and how for centuries that has been the expectation 
of what would be done for the people of God, the men who are in the group of the people of God. And they couldn't step away from that. They, they couldn't let that go, the Jewish um, element in the early church. Not every Jew, but enough of them. And so he's saying, listen, the message of the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, period. He stated that earlier in the book of Galatians. He said, don't add to that circumcision. Now, I just ask for you in your own minds to make application. We don't practice religious circumcision in the church at all. But could there be other things that the church does, has done over the centuries, that could be substituted for that word circumcision? Just think about that. I'm not asking for you to respond. That's always a temptation, to seek to add to the work of Christ and the grace of God. Um, and he says, if you do that, Christ profits you nothing. So that's lifestyle. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. He says, if that's the route you want to go, you don't understand the implications, Paul is saying. You don't understand the implications. You're not thinking this through. You're not connecting the dots. And the dots are very real. So don't go down that path and include that in your following of Christ with the expectation then that everyone who comes to Christ that is a male, because they didn't practice female circumcision. I didn't knew, realize there was such a thing until some years ago. I heard about it <clears throat> in Africa where they did that with females. Uh, and it's, that, that was new to me. Uh, but in the, in, in the law, uh, in Judaism, it's just male circumcision. He says, do not go down that path. You have these guys out here teaching this, but they're not telling you the implications of this way of believing and thinking. Here are the implications. That everyone that is circumcised, he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And he says, nobody under the old covenant, from Moses up to Christ, kept the law. Everybody fell short, except for one person, Jesus Christ. And he kept it perfectly. Perfect obedience. He said, so if you, if you believe that by circumcision and other requirements of the law, he says, understand this, you're going down this path, whether you realize it or not, that you're a debtor to keep the whole law. Understand the message and the implications of it for the gospel. So it's not just a conceptual thing here. It deals with lifestyle. Because with circumcision came other lifestyle responsibilities in the system of Judaism. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. And of course, they didn't realize that circumcision and perhaps keeping a Sabbath um, and other requirements that they viewed as essential uh, they didn't understand that that 
path led them to the responsibility of keeping the whole law, not just certain key elements that they identified. He says, you've fallen from grace. You have, you have not, you're no longer on the path of grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It doesn't matter in Christ if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It, that's not the dynamic. The, the dynamic is faith in Christ by the grace of God. That's it. That's what he says here. But faith working through love. <clears throat> so he's addressing the religious lifestyle that they were seeking to pack into the church, churches of Galatia. And he says, don't go there. Don't go there. Ephesians 4.1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That's lifestyle. And we're not going to track then through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and early part of chapter 6. But if you track through chapter 4, chapter 5, and the early part of chapter 6, it's lifestyle. The lifestyle that we're called to in Christ Jesus. That's what we're to identify and pursue. And he says, now walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. See, we need to be more focused on being the people that God has called us to be than trying to isolate uh, important, certain important decisions that we all bump into in life. That's part of the will of God, but a more important will of the will of God is this daily consistent lifestyle to which we are called. It is a calling. It's not a suggestion. <laughs> It's not, it's not like this is really the best way of living. I like for you to examine this in the context of other lifestyles, and you will find that the one to which you are called is the best. No, it, it is a calling. And that calling gives credibility to the transformative message of the gospel. So we need to be the people that we uh, we're going to imperfectly be the people that God has called us to be in Christ because that perfection won't come until we are in the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> but we are to pursue the lifestyle that we're called to. Ephesians 5, 8 to 13. So this is part of it. For you were once darkness. That's who we were. That, that's a general characterization of our lives. But now you are light in the Lord. This is who we are now. Does that mean we're perfect? No, but this, we, we now have a new identity. We are light in the Lord. That's a metaphor. He says, walk, peripateo. Conduct your life. Set the course of your life. That's what walk means. As children of light. He says, that's who we are. Walk. Let's conduct the course of our life according to the light that we are and that we have in Christ Jesus. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, 
righteousness, and truth. Those are the parameters in which light operates. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So, question, how do we find out what is acceptable to the Lord? You want to know what's acceptable to the Lord? There you go. God's Word. That's how we find out. Get into the Word of God. And have no fellowship to share in common with. That's what the word fellowship means, koinonia. To to participate together and to share in common with. Our fellowship is in Christ Jesus. We have a common relationship in Him. We participate together in Christ Jesus. And he says, as believers, we're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. If we have any questions about what those unfruitful works of darkness might be, at least in some particular ways and broad ways, where can we go to get definitive understanding as to what those unfruitful works of darkness might be? I just, where could we go? How do we have a resource? Or is it just up to us to kind of figure it out? And if Jeff figures it out one way and I figure it out another way, it's okay because we're figuring it out. Is is there a definitive source? Gail says there is. Tell me. Oh, just like Jeff said before. And in particular, the New Covenant? Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. That's lifestyle. We're not to have common participation with whatever the scriptures identify as unfruitful, unproductive, unuseful works of darkness. Unfruitful, unproductive, unuseful in God's eyes. A number of these works may be useful, productive in man's eyes, in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes they're not but rather expose them. Wow. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. It doesn't mean don't speak of them, but he says because those unfruitful works are shameful, it's, it's shameful even to speak of them. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the, what? The light. And the light is God, and God has given us the light of his word. For whatever makes manifest is light. That's lifestyle. So we're, we're called to not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. That's important in our witness. Ephesians 5.32. This is a great mystery, but this deals with uh, calm, uh, the summation of the whole relationship of uh, man and wife in marriage. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, so the, the, the whole relationship of marriage for the believer is an expression of Christ's relationship with the church. And so our marriages are a testimony 
of Christ's relationship to his church. That, that brings another component to how we process marriage as followers of Christ. Our marriage, husband and wife, that, that one flesh relationship, that union, that commitment to one another, is being used by God as part of the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the church. And so everything that Paul has articulated prior to this concerning the key responsibilities of the wife and the key responsibilities of the husband are vital in expressing this relationship between Christ and his church. Nevertheless, each one, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. So the number one priority in lifestyle for believing husbands, the number one priority, not the only priority, but the priority that operates above the other priorities, shapes them, governs them, drives them, love your wife. Love your wife. It's the number one responsibility. And then, obviously, since that's a priority, we as men want to understand what that means to love our wives from the scriptures. I'm not going to go on the view and ask the four ladies on the view what that means because I'm going to get some strange answers. <laughs> I'm going to go to the scriptures to understand love. But that's our number one responsibility. That's lifestyle. That's lifestyle. And how we love our wives is not only evident to our wives, it's evident to those who know us, to those who are around us. That's testimony. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The number one responsibility of the wife is to be respectful of her husband. That, that's consistent with what was said earlier. Wives, be submitting yourselves to your husbands. Um, it doesn't say respect your husband if he earns it. If he's worthy of it, if in your mind he can check off the boxes, no, it says respect your husband. I learned long ago that respect in general is both earned and given. And we're called to respect our governing leaders. So we give respect to our governing leaders. That doesn't mean that they have earned it by their lifestyle, that they have earned it by their character. You can have both in place where you respect that governing leader because of their position and authority, and God has said, in my structure of creation, I want authority figures respected. That's what God says. Governing authority figures. So I can give respect and I can treat governing authorities respectfully. I can speak of them respectfully. But by their life, their character, who they are, at the same time, they have not earned respect. 
so I don't necessarily respect an ungodly lifestyle. And, and my point of illustrating this is that, you know, as husbands, we fall short. And I want to hear the ladies saying, I know. <laughs> we do. And quite frankly, there are men who have wives that have no business from a being a husband point of view, being a husband. I mean, they, they don't, it's all about them and they don't love their wives. Um, you have real jerks of men who are husbands in that relationship. But our Lord says, respect. Always have an attitude of respect. That doesn't, you know, that's just a general attitude that's supposed to be there. Just as all women are not, if they, if they were earning love, They'd fall short. Not all of them. My wife doesn't. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Just because you're in a marriage relationship doesn't mean that the wife that you're married to is relating to you and having a relationship with you that encourages a loving attitude, a loving disposition, a loving reaction. It may be encouraging the very opposite still to love our wives. So, I mean, it cuts both ways. So this is the counsel, the, not only the counsel, but the call. This is part of this Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. And in a marriage relationship, this is part of our calling. This is lifestyle. This is part of our witness. And so, you know, Paul's saying, hey, how we implement this lifestyle that <laughs> invades every part of our life, it's critical to the proclamation of the gospel. Because the gospel is transformative. And if we're not being transformed, then what's the credibility of the gospel? So this is a good place to stop. Um, this morning, we're about finished with our class time, and, but this is just a good place to stop as we uh, contemplate uh, this whole dynamic of being witnesses in the lifestyle that God's called us to. Father, we thank you this morning for this time together in your word, and help us, Father, to embrace the lifestyle to which we are called to in Christ Jesus. And Lord, thank you for revealing to us so clearly and so fully um, this new life that we're called to in Christ Jesus in and through your word. And Lord, by your grace, may we um, seek to be more fully understanding it and genuinely implementing it into our lives. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org.